Welcome back to the 1497 podcast. It's your boy Jonathan Keaton in the cut right here. I have a very special guest today. I'm really excited for this. Harold Bardo is in the building today. Mr. Bardo, how, how are you doing? How are you doing? I'm today? well. I'm well. Thank you. That's good. That's good to hear. So you're a big Southern Illinois University alumni. So I wanted to know, what was the connection that made Southern Illinois University the college that you wanted to not only play basketball at, but make a change in the society in? Well, you have to remember, uh, I started school back in 1957. So there weren't that many options for a young African-American male from a small community called Sparta, Illinois. This is about 3,200 people live there. And I would imagine maybe seven or 800 black families lived in Sparta at that time. And it was only 50 or 50 plus miles from Sparta to Carbondale. So it was the closest university to us. It was a university that had a reputation of being amenable to having black students. And I got a scholarship. So I came here to play basketball at that time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because during that time, it's really such a hard period for young African-Americans, especially in athletics, because of everything that was going on. And there's just so there's so many distractions that it's just so hard to keep on going to school education wise. So my next question to you is I was reading an article from February 4th, 2000, uh, 2003, and it was a quote from you saying, racism helps uh, helps drive you, excuse me, because you know what it is you don't want to do. Bardo said, you know that you don't want to have to report to people who don't respect you as a human. So what was the mindset of that quote? And when you're looking back on that quote, how was like the society like how hard was it for you to deal with like the society problems as a young african male african-american male playing basketball well in uh in the early 50s segregation was still the law of the land and so i went to an all-black elementary school despite the fact that there weren't that many black families in sparta we had a black elementary school grades one through eight. We had two grades in each classroom. So I went to the first and second grade in the same classroom with the same teacher. I sat beside second graders. Third and fourth, it was the same way. We had one teacher for two grades. Third and fourth sat together and all the way up through the eighth grade. Well. That was the best education I'd ever had in my life because we had all black teachers in an all black school. And those of us that went on to high school, not all of us in our in our eighth grade class went on to high school, but those of us that did, our eighth grade teacher prepared us well to enter that society. And it was a it was an integrated high school at that time, but we were looked at through different eyes at that time. So our eighth grade teacher helped prepare us for 
that environment. Um, but growing up, we were always told that you had to be better. Uh, if you wanted to do anything in an integrated society, that you had to be better than white people or white folks. And so we were aware that racism existed because if you were on par with those people, then you couldn't succeed. You had to be better. And so that's what drove many of us to do better in the classroom, to do better in athletics, to do better in music or arts or whatever it was we went into. And so we knew the odds that we were facing and we knew what racism was. You know, uh, some people think that uh, this may sound silly, but you can feel when you're in, in, in an environment that is not hospitable toward blacks. You don't have to have visible signs. No one has to call you the N-word, but you can just sense it. And so many of us that grew up in those communities sensed it at that time. I think that's a quality that uh, young African-Americans this day and age have lost because all they've known is being in, living in an integrated world. But nonetheless, we were aware of it, and that's the way we dealt with it, by trying to be better even on the basketball court or in the classroom or wherever else. I really like the point that you brought up about how young black people now kind of forget that aspect, especially in our society, because now it's just completely different with the advanced technology that we have that black men, young black men are really under the light where everything they do, they're criticized by everything they do. And with the actions that they take, they're still criticized by that with every little move that they do. And a lot of people forget to realize that. And that's what makes life hard as a young black athlete, let alone just a young, young black person living in our society. And a lot of people don't what I also what I like about the society is a lot of people are starting to advocate more than we did back in like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and so on and so forth, especially athletes. And you were an athlete yourself. So how were you making an impact on racial change as an athlete slash advocator during your time? I think what we tried to do was, as I said, do everything better. We weren't seen as dumb athletes or dumb jocks. Um, the black students at SIU Carbondale were many in number, uh, and we we uh, tried to do things together. If you were, for example, a philosophy major, or if you were a math major, or if you were a science major, if you were trying to succeed in the classroom or an athlete, it didn't matter. Everybody would try to help you do what you needed to do to succeed in that classroom. So you would find people from all different disciplines that happened to be in the same class, studying together, trying to help one another. And basically, that's the way we dealt with things. We tried to be good citizens. We tried to be better than most. And we tried to excel in the classroom and on the court whenever we could. Insofar as being outspoken, uh, I don't think we were outspoken in the sense that we were standing on a soapbox or holding uh, 
mass meetings and talking about the way things were. I think we did it uh, in a more, what I would consider proactive, acceptable way to the majority. That is, we didn't have protests. We weren't walking around buildings and shouting and carrying signs and that thing. Uh, but we were doing things in the classroom and on the courts and on the fields uh, so that people would have to take notice of it. Do you think, because talking about like the proactive approach and during our society now, my, yeah, our society now, a lot of people are taking the route of going or doing protests and advocating in that sense. Do you think if you did that on top of what you were doing proactively, it would have made a bigger impact than you already were making? Excuse me. Um, I don't know. It may have. Um, that time has come and gone. We had people that protested, like I said, in their own way. Um, there used to be a special section in the theater, and black kids had to go upstairs to watch the movies. Well, Many of the guys just started going downstairs and nobody said a word to them. But that was a tradition that had long been established in that theater that blacks and whites wouldn't sit together in the theater. Yet, silently, without raising their voices, some of these young men and women went downstairs to the theater. Nobody said a word to them. And after that, everybody just went to the theater the way they wanted to go. On campus, things were much more open to us than in the community. And so on campus, we had people, people of color in all the groups on campus. Uh, the Theta Xi fraternity had a, had a variety show, for example, and a group, the fraternity called the Kappa Alpha Psi, won their variety show competition every year for, every year I was in school. We had, uh, people in a club they called the Sphinx Club. We had people in the math club and science club. So if you go back, we had yearbooks at that time in my college here at Southern Illinois University. We called the yearbook the obelisk. If you go back and look at the obelisk, you will find black students in all walks of campus life. So our campus life here was very different than outside the campus in the town, for example. And people just assumed that that's what we were supposed to do. And so we did it. We participated in everything here. And that's the way we protested. That, I love that. I love that. And the reason I love that is because it's just you're making your own noise. You're making your own value that people can still hear the revolution coming of minorities and all that to make change and a lot of a lot of things that a lot of people over a lot of people look overlook a lot of nationalities a lot of races especially throughout history because it's such a thick span of everything so i wanted to ask you what is one thing people always overlook about black people in our history Well, I, th I think they probably overlook a number of things, but I think one thing they underestimate is the strength and will 
of people of color to do what it is they want and need to do in order to survive in this community. I think that's oftentimes underestimated. And so they look at people of color and they wonder, well, you know, what keeps them going? Could I do this after being subjected to all the uh, disabuse they've been subjected to, for example? Um, would I quit? And we did, we had no choice because for many of us, this was the route to a better life. Home was where we were trying to get away from in the sense that there was little there that would fulfill our lives. We could live like people had lived before us for hundreds of years, or we could come to this place 50 miles from home, in my case, and try to make a better life for ourselves. And so that's what many of us did, which is why we were so driven to try to succeed, whatever that means. For me, it meant getting a degree. For many of my fellows, it meant getting a degree, leaving home, getting a better job, being able to help support people back home as a result of all those experiences. Yeah, because it's really, it's really important for like education is one of the most, if not the most important thing that anyone could grasp because an education and having that degree gets you better placement in better working and way better working establishments. So if you see like more people in color getting those types of jobs, then you see the results that they're going or you see the results that they're getting from those jobs. A lot of jobs are going to expand their operation and hire more people of color. And that's super important for the movement that's still been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Yeah. So I was thinking about this question as you were talking about it, and I always talk to my Nana about things that go on, especially in Chicago during like the 50s, the 60s, 70s, so on and so forth. So have you ever had a, have you ever had an experience that was like, wow, like I can't believe this is actually happening, but it was turned into a life lesson that you would always remember till this day? I can't recall one experience, uh, but I'm sure I've had those kinds of experiences. It's hard to think back over all those years and try to single out an experience that uh, was life-changing. And so I think I'll have to pass on that question right now. I can think about it and maybe later I can come up with something, but I can't at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be 83 next month. So when I look back, that's a long way to look back. And a lot of experiences have occurred in my life over that period of time. And so it's difficult, as I said, to try to single out something that uh, would make sense to me and would make sense to you. So I'll have to pass on that right now. Okay. That's under that's understandable because it's, it's a lot to go through. Yeah. But I also thought of this. So throughout your 83 years of life, happy early birthday, by the Thank way. You. Thank you. Um, what would you, like, out of all, like, everything that you have gone through, that you have lived through, 
if you had to put one word as the describer on everything, what word would you choose and why? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that word is probably optimistic. And the reason I say that is that you can get knocked down so many ways. Uh, you can get detracted so many ways. It doesn't have to be a major experience. It can be the fact that you have a brother or a sister that think it's ill and you can't do anything about it, yet you have to stay in that community and help raise them or help provide for them. And that sometimes uh, kind of depresses you because you can't reach for your goal as a result. Something outside of yourself has prevented you from getting to that particular goal. So I think you just have to remain optimistic that you can do it, that you can get there despite what happens to you in your life. And that's the best way to do it is always, always stay happy and always and don't ever think negative because yeah, there's yeah. always an opportunity lurking around the corner. And that's what all, my nan always tells me too. like, even if it's going wrong, just always look to always be optimistic. Yeah. And so we've been diving, I've been diving into family a little bit and a lot of things from a family aspect means a lot to me. And I was reading a, a lot of articles and you and Steven, you guys were watching basketball together, broad, like calling the games together. So I wanted to know, what does family mean to you? Uh, first of all, it means uh, someone you can love outside of yourself. And it means unconditional love and care. So whenever I see Stephen or my other two children or my wife, I don't have to wonder about whether or not they care about me or whether they love me. I know that they do. And so my relationship is built on that love and I can move on from that point. Uh, and so when I think of family, that's the first word that comes to mind. Love and the fact that I can rely on them. I don't care what the situation is. They will be there to support me. I will be there to support them. And I try to tell them that even more so on every occasion that I see them. Because when you have uh, life-changing experiences, you have to rely on people that you love. And people that you love are there for you when you have those life-changing experiences. So I think family means love most of all to me. And I completely, I completely agree with that. And having that love outside of yourself, it just makes you feel like, wow, like this is, this is just amazing. Like I love like the aspect of my family because they're always there for you and so on and so forth. And a lot of, a lot of things have been told by either my uncle, my aunt, my Nana, my dad, my mom, that always like stuck out with me or I always think about randomly. Was there, what was one lesson you taught Steven 
that he will always remember forever. Wow. That's a pretty deep question. I don't know that there's any one lesson, but I hope uh, Stephen has learned through love to be able to trust others. Um, he may get disappointed, but love will overcome that. If you allow yourself to love and trust others, uh, I think your life will be a lot more full, a lot more rich, a lot more rewarding, because despite how strong your family is, you need others outside your family to help fulfill your life. And I think if you can venture trust and love, even though you may get hurt, you can rebound from that and continue to move forward. So I think that's the lesson I hope he's learned the most. Yeah, and that's that's a valuable lesson to have in the back of your mind all the time. So I was I was reading I was reading a lot of articles about <laughs> about you and uh, Stephen, and one thing that caught my eye was uh, Stephen had an interview with Dickie V on ESPN, and then I read under that that you told him to send a thank you letter to ESPN. I wanted to know the story behind like you saying, Stephen, you have to send them a thank you note. And what was like the idea that developed the thank you letter to ESPN? Well, as you said, we used to sit on the floor in our little family room in our house, watch the television, analyze games, and in so doing, we would also analyze the analyst, try to determine who we liked and why we liked them, why we didn't like them, those that we thought weren't as fair as others. And as a consequence, um, I think he learned from me and our friends how to look at the game in a different light. But the fact that you write a thank you note to someone is just a good practice. Um, saying thank you doesn't cost you anything. But to acknowledge when others have done or gone out of their way to do something special for you and to acknowledge it written in your own words means an awful lot to a lot of people. It meant a lot to me. And that's the way we used to communicate as young people. When I was growing up, when I was living with my aunt and uncle, they would tell me, always acknowledge people that have done something for you. So Stephen wanted to get into broadcasting. And so you need friends in that industry, as you may or may not know. And so the best way to establish friendships is if you come in contact with people, let them leave thinking that you have appreciated the opportunity, that you'd like to get into this kind of work, that they may be able to help you. But if you just let it go, you just be like any other person. So you want to be, you want to make an impression with those people. So you write them simple thank you note and say, thank you for allowing me to interview. I'm interested in this kind of work. I think you do a great job or whatever. But you let people know that you're appreciative of the opportunity. Yeah, and a lot of people forget, like, because, like, that's just a little thing. 
And that little thing flourished Steven's mm-hmm. career as a broadcaster, mm-hmm. as an analyst. And mm-hmm. a lot of people just forget to say thank you sometimes because thank you can go a long way in a right. lot of people's books. So just having that little aspect and having those words behind it can really flourish your career to the best of your capabilities. I love that. So you guys both played basketball. So you guys are big basketball heads. So what got you into basketball? How were you introduced? I told you we went to an all black grade school elementary school, we had one basketball and we had wooden backboards, square wooden backboards on a playground that wasn't paved. Uh, It was like a gravel playground. So we played out there every noon hour, every break we got. We didn't play much after school because there was not an opportunity to play after school. Um, And so we really started playing my friends and me started playing in high school. And so we played at noon hour in high school and after school we were playing. And so we were on the basketball team after that. And our coach, my high school coach, who happened to be a white man, took an interest in me and tried to help me learn how to play better. And so I would practice what he taught me and he assisted me in getting a scholarship down here. Uh, football coach also helped because he was from this area and he thought I would be a good representative of Southern Illinois. And so he assisted in helping me get a scholarship here. And that's how I started playing. But I didn't play a lot until I got here at the university. Then I played an awful lot of basketball. Yeah. And then the connection towards that too, is amazing because it made me think about Red Arbach back with the Boston Celtics because he was the like really first white male in ownership to really get a lot of black players come in and playing for the Boston Celtics. Russell, like great Bill Russell, rest in peace, was one of the or the first of the foundation of black players playing in the NBA and that growing in the NBA. So that's cool. I like that. So if you could describe Steven's worth ethic in one word, what would you say, what would that word be and why would it be that word? Uh, I would say that word is probably persistence. And Stephen is uh, driven and determined. He's not afraid to fail. He's failed many times before. He's lost jobs before, but he's been persistent in his pursuit of excellence. And I think it's paid off for him. So persistence is a word I think I would use. And a lot of people, when they get down, they stay down. And it's important to let those people know especially the audience that's listening to this, that you're going to get knocked down a lot. It's just how you're going to get back up when you get knocked down. Yeah. Yeah. Resilience is a big, big trait. That's true. So, Mr. Vardo, 
Mm-hmm. They're athletes now. They have been getting into a lot of political matters. LeBron James, Chris Middleton, well, the whole Milwaukee Bucks. Um, the whole the whole Milwaukee Bucks, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Stephen Curry. The list goes on and on. And younger athletes in high school and college are also getting into these societal, these society issues as well. So what is the importance of athletes joining a revolution movement for black people? They have a bigger platform. Uh, If I were to do something here in Carbondale in terms of a social justice movement, it would not get noticed as much. If LeBron James or Stephen Curry or Chris Middleton, any of the professional athletes or any well-known collegiate athletes get involved in a cause, there's a lot of publicity that will surround them, a lot of media, a lot of hype. They can get their word out or the word out for the community far better than any one person in a community here in Carbondale without that kind of notoriety. But it doesn't mean that because you have that, don't have that notoriety that you need to stop or cease or desist or get disappointed because people need to be aware that there are injustices. And if you can stand up for injustices wherever you are, it'll make a difference in the long haul. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you answered that the way you answered that, because I was just about to ask the like for young athletes, if they wanted to get towards that bigger platform, what should they do? And you answered that perfectly. And I love I love that answer because me, I love like getting into these issues, finding solutions for these issues, because. When you talk about it more, the more people are going to get involved and the more people that are going to get involved, more voices is better than one voice because it speaks at a higher value. Mm-hmm. So how has since we're talking about revolutionary movements, how has the idea of being a revolutionary been brought down to Stephen? Well, I don't mean to sound boastful or bragging, but Stephen has had the benefit of being around people in our family who are educated people. Uh, He's been around deans. He's been around college presidents. He's been around vice chancellors of universities. He had a good elementary education, a good high school education, and he went on to the University of Illinois. So... He has a good, strong background. Um, He knows how to speak his mind. He's articulate enough to express his point of views. He uh, can, if he wants, uh, I think, make a statement. And I think uh, the statement will be heard. Now, it may not be heard the way he wants it heard, but he's capable of doing that because of his upbringing and his background and his own temperament. He's kind of a strong-willed, to put it nicely, strong-willed person. 
He's uh, determined. He's persistent, as I said. And uh, he'll make mistakes sometimes. But because of all the cushioning that he has, in terms of his education, in terms of the love, in terms of the support of family and friends, he'll rebound from those things far easier than with someone without those other qualities. Sometimes it all works. It all works in your in your path, and you just got to know how to use those resources when those tools are just there to be utilized. So thank you, Mr. Bardo, for joining me to Deb on the 1497 podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. And then if I don't get to talk to you within the next month, I will reiterate, happy early birthday, Mr. Bardo. <laughs> thank you, Jonathan, and best of luck to you in your career. I know that you're going to school with DePaul. That's a pretty strong university. Is it a Jesuit university? Uh, can you repeat that? DePaul. Is that a Jesuit university? I I think, I believe so. I could, I could be wrong on that, but I believe so. Well, you're going to have very strong professors, very bright professors in those classrooms. You absorb as much as you can, learn as much as you can. If it doesn't come to you quickly, realize that there are other ways of getting material other than listening to the professor make the presentation. You have to seek out resources that can help you understand what it is you need to understand to do well in the classes that you're taking. Also remember, I don't know how you're going to school. If your mother, father, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, whoever is helping you get through that school, they are relying on you not to go there, waste their money, waste your time in your life. They want you to excel in that classroom. There's plenty of time to play. Do the very best you can in that classroom, and you won't ever regret it once you leave that university. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Best of luck in your career. Do well in the classroom, and Godspeed. Thank you so much, Mr. Bardo. Again, it was a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully you can come back soon. Okay. Good luck to you, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh -huh. Bye-bye.